And then when I was like 15, I tried to create my first company in, in Spain and it was impossible. Like basically the government was like, no, you can't create a company because you are under, I think it was 18 years old. Who is the government to stop me from creating a company? It's not like I'm trying to, you know, like plant a bomb or something and trying to like create value. And, and that was censorship. I felt censored. I'm Tor Bear from Enigma and welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Decentralize This, presented by Enigma. My name is Tor Bear. I'm the head of growth for Enigma, and today I am excited to be speaking with Luis Quende. Luis is the co-founder of Aragon, a platform that allows anyone to create and manage decentralized organizations. He's a really incredible thinker and builder, having published his first book at 18 and having been named to the Forbes 30 Under 30. Aragon recently released a new version of their platform on the Ethereum mainnet, which Luis and I are able to discuss. We'll also talk about why Luis got into the blockchain space, the power of decentralized autonomous organizations, where our current centralized systems are falling short, and the conflicts between regulation and decentralization, and how those have impacted both Luis and Aragon itself. Luis is extremely insightful and also very disciplined in his pursuit of building new types of technologies and organizations that are actually going to be useful at scale. So I found speaking with him to be very inspiring, and I hope that our conversation inspires you as well. And so without any further introduction, here is Luis Quende. Luis, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Decentralize This. I'm so thrilled to be talking with you today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I wanted to start off by asking the same question I do for every show, just who is Luis professionally, personally? How would you describe yourself? So I'm a um, hacker and hacker meaning not only that I've been coding, but also like I've been building stuff uh, since I was uh, very young and just, you know, kind of learning stuff from the internet and also got into Bitcoin in 2011. And for me, that was that was great. That was huge um, because I'm all about freedom. And so um, I've been I've been working on crypto for, for a long time and now I'm, I'm working on Aragon, which is a project to basically decentralize organizations. Yeah, Aragon has uh, recently launched Mainnet, right? Yeah, yeah, like two weeks ago. I think that puts you in a in a distinct minority in the crypto space, where where there's been a lot of talk about shipping and and not a lot of actual code getting out there. But I one thing I find so respectable about Aragon is how consistently uh, you guys are able to release stuff. Uh, so what do you, what do you uh, what are you guys prioritizing now that that Mainnet is out? I'm I'm just curious. Well, I mean, first of all, we have to really polish a lot of uh, small things that we've been working on during the past like year, because um, when we say that Aragon is a mainnet, it's not only like the Aragon client and the beautiful interface that it has, but it's also stuff like, for example, a purely decentralized package manager that we have to build in order to serve Aragon in a fully decentralized way without having to require any central server whatsoever, which is, I think, Aragon is one of the very few dApps that are actually 100% decentralized. Like, you know, um, we all die tomorrow in like the different Aragon teams and Aragon contributors, and it will keep working. And that's amazing. 
Um, but now I think we have to focus more and more on use cases. So we're trying to get some of the you know users or like crypto projects that have been trying to use Aragon for the past year or so um, and looking forward to it. And now we finally have the bandwidth to basically, you know, tell them, hey, you can use it now and help them and see what are the things that they need improved. I just want to be clear that I would prefer that all of you not die tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, me, me too. I feel I feel the same way. I feel the same way. <laughs> That's good. Um, but no, it's 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 really impressive, and I and I know that um, you guys have a lot of hard work in the days ahead, and I know you've put in a lot of hard work to get to this point. So let's talk a little bit specifically about how, how you got into the space, how you got into first Bitcoin, um, and the why of that, and then I'll I'll try to like connect that back to the present day, and and how what you were building then is connected to what you've built now, and then what you've just been able to ship, which is really exciting. I think especially as you're mentioning this value of freedom. Um, but let's go back to the beginning. Uh, what, what would you consider your your beginning in, in terms of getting started as a, a hacker and developer? Well, it was actually in the Linux community. So, um, I mean, when I was like 12 years old, I discovered Linux. Um, it was a, like a very funny coincidence. Basically, someone gave my, my father um, a CD with a Linux distribution and he left it in a table. And I was like, well, I want to try to figure out how to install this. And I actually took like a week to install it, which is, you know, terrible because it usually takes like 30 minutes or something. But I was so new um, that, that, you know, I, I took a lot of time. But then after installing it, I, I discovered like what Linux is, what uh, like open source is, what free software is. And I was amazed by this kind of post-capitalist society that was, you know, being built behind the scenes. And after that, um, I think in 2009, I saw it for the first time. I thought it was a scam. I was like, this is just technically impossible. It cannot work. And then in 2011, I actually went to like read the white paper and I actually thought, you know, um, you were wrong. Like this is actually something that can be built and exists and like is technically sound. And then I, I, I got into it because of the freedom it gives to people in this kind of also this post-capitalist feeling that it had. Now we're at the point where you, you've started getting into that community. What what made you start thinking about other uses for decentralized technologies beyond Bitcoin? Well, I have always been thinking about Bitcoin as a way for people to organize more than like a currency. Uh, I never, I actually, um, like a lot of people say, you know, you must have a lot of Bitcoins because you got so early into the space. And to be honest, I, I never thought of like buying Bitcoin. I was just like, how can I experiment with this technology? How can I like build the stuff around it? But I was so not interested in like the monetary part of it, um, which I mean, it's a, it's a huge part of it. Like you can't have all of this without having fully sovereign currency. But I was super interested in like the, you know, basically how to have people organizing, accepting this, this currency and um, building organizations that don't need through, to go through like traditional methods of organizations, such as, you know, going through the government or a company registry or stuff like this. And then when I was like 15, I tried to create my first company in, in Spain, uh, where I was raised in. And it was impossible. Like basically the government was like, no, you can't create a company because you are under, I think it was 18 years old. Um, and I was upset because who is the government to stop me from creating a company? It's not like I'm trying to, you know, like plant a bomb or something. I'm trying to like create value. And and that was censorship. I felt censored. And so um, because of that and a bunch of other things, I realized, you know, maybe there's something we can do to to enable the creation of value in a permissionless manner. And 
Bitcoin didn't enable that because of how simple it is this protocol. But then um, I came across Ethereum, and Ethereum was exactly what we needed to to get something like that done. Yeah, so you were involved, I guess, in, the, in those earlier days of Ethereum. What was it like? You know, because I think even then Ethereum was getting a lot of pushback from the from what would be considered the Bitcoin community. There were a lot of skeptics even around that technology. But it sounds like it was so resonant for you that maybe you weren't a skeptic to start. Well, actually, I mean, I, I was into crypto very early, but I was kind of late to Ethereum. I mean, depends on what you define as late, right? It was like late 2016, which is like super early for most people. But um, like inside the Bitcoin community, um, I actually was like a, kind of a Bitcoin maximalist. And so I thought like Ethereum was a pre-mine um, until like I actually got into it. And, and then I discovered I was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um and but back in the day, I, I I thought very similar to like you know Bitcoin maximalists in this aspect until, you know, I discovered I was wrong. It kind of happened the same that it happened um, with the Bitcoin white paper. Um, I thought it was a scam first, and then I was like, oops, no, not a scam at all. Hmm. So it's funny. So you're sort of a converted maximalist, and I, I I've met a few, um, but I've also met many many uh, Bitcoin maximalists, self-described Bitcoin maximalists, who are convinced that there really isn't much value to blockchain beyond Bitcoin, that Bitcoin is the real innovation. If if you had to convert uh, a Bitcoin maximalist who is listening to this podcast and, and help them understand this, like how much you go about doing it, knowing that like they come with all these preconceived notions about what Bitcoin is and what blockchain is and what Ethereum is. I think it's really easy once you start to think of them as complementary. So um Bitcoin is very well positioned as a store of value, as we have seen in this in this past crash. Bitcoin has remained very stable compared to like Ether, and that's because it's very it's a very sound store of value. Um, but it doesn't allow for a lot of things that Ether or, or you know Ethereum allows for. And so, when we look up, um, around how people will interact, like you know five years from now or something like that, it is very possible that you will use the Ethereum blockchain to do um, a lot of things that you you do in your day to day, interacting with people, voting, um, you know, creating organizations, uh, stuff like that. And then once you are done with like those interactions, you will want your your value, your your wealth to be stored in a blockchain such as Bitcoin, which is very damp. It doesn't do a lot of things, so it's very secure, and and also you know it's very slow to or very hard to change because you have to always like hard fork and hard forks take like years because there's a lot of um, decentralization in how consensus works. Whereas in Ethereum, it moves very fast and it can implement a lot of stuff way faster than Bitcoin. And so I think they are very complementarian. We will see how that works. Like I'm looking looking forward to having Bitcoin and Ethereum breaches. Um, but yeah, I think they are very complementary. And I love Ethereum because everything that enables that Bitcoin just doesn't. So you're talking just now about building new types of organizations with Aragon, and it's something that I want to get into a lot because we've talked on other episodes of this podcast about what a decentralized organization might look like. We had Richard Crabe come on talking about the ways in which Numerai is and is not decentralized, uh, and I, I think it's such a fascinating topic, but everybody's got their own motivations, I think, for why they want to see new types of organizations. So you already gave the one example of, you know, being told that you couldn't start your own company because you were too young, which seems pretty ridiculous, especially given how many young founders there are now doing such amazing work, including, you know, Vitalik with Ethereum. So 
where where do you think our current systems and institutions primarily like our current organizations where where else are they failing us what are we trying to improve on i've heard you speak a little bit for example about like the educational system and, and i know yeah. that that's and i know that that's something that um a lot of the the younger founders we've had on this podcast uh, they've mentioned that as well I, i'd be curious about that and then any anywhere else that you see it happening yeah i think the education system is just one of the many um organizations that are very hard to change because they are just very big and they are usually a monopoly. Like in, in a lot of countries, basically the government is the one that runs the whole education system. And so I think what the centralized organizations give us is they remove the monopoly of governance away from the governments and they democratize governance. So anyone can create organizations and, and organize freely without the need of using these central points of failure that are um, governments. And so for example, if we think about how to create an education system, we are thinking about organizing, I would say, millions of people around um, around something. And so that's very really hard, and that was very really hard previously. And now with blockchains, with like tamper-proof voting, um, that can be done in like a couple of clicks, uh, identity, and all of these things, we can actually have um, systems that organize millions of people without the need of this like central coordinator. So I think that's great because it enables stuff like, you know, um, coordinating new education systems that are totally parallel to the traditional world ones. And that's just so exciting. I want to ask you something I've asked some other guests too, which is to what extent is this going to be developed in parallel, sort of as like a parallel universe? And to what extent are we going to be trying to integrate some of these new systems into our current systems? Like how long is it going to take before we start seeing those lines blur? Or have we already started to see that? Mm. Well, I think on one hand, if you want to build blockchain native protocols, it's way easy because you don't have to interface with all the legacy of the traditional world, which sometimes is just too much, like it just doesn't let you move. Um, on the other hand, I think once we have some jurisdictions that start experimenting with all of this, we will see jurisdictional competitions. So we will basically see places in the world that are way ahead in integrating these things and understanding them. And so... Um, they will basically ride the wave and, you know, like get a lot of value out of it because people will go to these jurisdictions. And so I'm actually in one of them, which is Switzerland. So Switzerland has totally taken the path of like, let's try to integrate with crypto and let's try to, to move fast. I mean, obviously like they are governments, so they don't know what move fast means. Like moving fast for them is like, you know, some years down the line. Uh, whereas for a crypto project, it may be like months or days or weeks. Um, but like, for example, here in Souk, where I live, like they are very, very serious about uh, crypto. You can even pay taxes with like Bitcoin and, and all of that. So um, I think that that creates a lot of competition because, you know, what what do people do? They move here um, or they move to the places in the world that are friendly and in which, you know, they don't basically um, kick you out of the country or make you pay uh, a bunch of taxes if you interact with crypto. So I think that will start happening more and more, and that will basically incentivize countries to behave and, and be good to the crypto movement. It's interesting. I had this conversation with Michael Casey when he came on, and we were talking about the idea that like we, we say that decentralization is about breaking down these barriers to participation you know, and, and making sure that this is an actual global inclusive movement. And when I hear people talk about, you know, it's like we've already got these places in the world that are being so crypto friendly and forward thinking and so on. I can't help but think that, you know, there's a risk that we're just creating 
um, a different kind of uh, of power structure, right? That like there, there's going to be these early adopters, and then there's going to be everybody else. And obviously, I, I don't think that that lines up with most of our values in the space. But there is the risk that this happens if there's only a few places in the world that are really going to fully embrace this technology, and it becomes as world changing as we're all projecting. So what do you think we can do to make sure that we remain as inclusive as possible, even considering like the constraints of like Switzerland is going to play nice, but maybe the US isn't, or maybe China is going to shut everything down. Like I'm not trying hmm. to like name, call out particular countries, but just because global regulations are are so different, how, how can we make sure we're still being inclusive? Because we can't just ignore the law. Yeah, I think that's very important. I mean, you know, crypto becoming the next establishment is something that worries me a lot because if you look at it, it can be very easy. Like basically crypto is a very capital abundant space um, and in which people, like a lot of people don't know what's going on, just like a few experts. Like if you, if you take, if you take technologies like CK Snarks, there is just like maybe a hundred people in the world that truly understand what is happening. And so it would be very easy for them to take advantage of like the rest of, of the people in the world. So I think um, there are a couple of solutions for that. I mean, one of them in regards to law is make everything fully decentralized so it's impossible to censor. And then people can enjoy it, you know, whatever they live in the world um, and can uh, create value without like borders or, or any kind of intermediaries. Um, I think that's very important. And like, you know, when I see a lot of these crypto projects that are compromising on decentralization, and that, you know, have, for example, the front end for their dApps hosted on a centralized server, or they have smart contracts that are upgradable by just one address or stuff like that. I think, you know, that that works in the short term and it may help you have a product that works, um, you know, before um, and anyone else. But on the other hand, like, you know, the first day that a regulator is like, I don't like what it's been posted here or I don't like what, you know, how this works. They can shut it down and people, you know, lose access to their tools and, and that's pretty bad for them. So I think we should really, really, really think about decentralization first and pseudonymity first, or even anonymity first, if we can. Um, and that would enable people in the world to just um, access these tools um, without having to care about the specific jurisdiction they live in or whether they're government is friendly or not. Yeah. And, and now we're getting into some other values here, right, as well. Like one that we talk about a lot at Enigma, obviously, is privacy. And you've just mentioned like anonymity. And, and how do you think solving for privacy and anonymity and, and things like that can contribute to what you're saying around this vision of decentralization? Like how important is it that we also solve for that in order to create mm. actually decentralized organizations and institutions? I would say it's key. I mean, if you have jurisdictions that are friendly, um, that's great. But, um, and, and you know, we should try to push for that. But if you if you don't, then... We have to really go the cypherpunk route and make sure that whatever you leave, you have the same right to privacy. And and this right to privacy may not be guaranteed by law in your jurisdiction, but it may be guaranteed by technology. And so we have to really push for that. I think um, actually in the Ethereum community, is something that we are not doing very well, which is privacy. Like, you know, you go to like anyone's Ethereum address and you can basically see everything they do and, and all of that, which is sweet. I mean, it works for now. Um, and, and, you know, you basically use Infura or something, and then you are leaking all your addresses. Like, I think, uh, we really need a lot of privacy technology built in, I mean, in crypto in general, but like in the Ethereum space in particular. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously there's projects that have focused on transactional privacy like Monero, Zcash, etc. And and that is a that is a start towards what we're talking about, but I think for the kind of vision that you're describing, it really is around like, you know, privacy for everything, you know, computational yeah. privacy and everything else. It we're we're in very early stages. Like I think we're very agreed that, you know, the work that's being done now is foundational and and we still don't know. Uh, what the most successful technologies are going to look like, or even what Ethereum itself is going to look like um, in a couple of years. But I, but I think these values are are going to endure, right? This value of decentralization and and equal access, um, I I do see that being like a foundation that can be built on. Are there other values that you see as kind of key to what Aragon specifically uh, is doing and thinking about? Hmm. Yeah, I think one value um, that is very important also is uh, inclusivity in, the, in terms of mm -hmm. having products that are usable by people. So um, I think, you know, we were very early into heavily investing into design. So if you go to like uh, the Argon client and you try it out, it is very, very easy to use. We have a couple of things that are still, uh, you know, like basically um, uh, human readable addresses and stuff like that, which I mean, it's a problem that the whole space really has, right? How do mm -hmm. you, how do you get away from the zero X one, two, three, whatever that is. Um, but apart from that, like we really invested into, into, into UX because we don't think it's just like, Oh, it looks nice. It's actually something that includes people. Like otherwise, um, if there is just like developers who know how to use it, then we end up being the next like establishment basically. So I think usability and inclusivity by creating products that are easy to use. It's so important. Yeah, ease of use seems critical and, and relates back to what I was asking you about how we make sure it's a global movement. You know, if if it's like, let alone, you know, like if, if only developers can use it, if only English speakers can use it, that's a problem too. And I think a lot of the knowledge base in this space is is still mostly in English, but there's also, you know, really great work being done in Asia uh, to some extent that I don't speak Korean, Chinese, Japanese. It, it's a barrier for me. It's not even the same alphabet. And I feel like, we're, yeah. we're not even making that knowledge base uh, accessible. So, you know, we're, we're fighting a lot of things here when we're trying to build a global movement and language is one yeah. of them. Totally. So let me ask you then, because we've now talked about like the types of organizations that we currently have that, that, that are coming short in some ways. And we've talked a little bit about, you know, the values we're trying to bring with decentralized organizations. What are some of the types of decentralized organizations that you are seeing have success or that you believe will have uh, the most success in the near term? Like what would should, what would should be, we should, oh my God, <laughs> what would, what should we be looking for? I think there are, um, well, there are a lot of, of types of decentralized organizations that I'm excited about, but there are two that are very um, I would say particularly interesting for the crypto space. And one of them is basically DAOs or decentralized organizations that control how a smart contract is upgraded. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have a smart contracts, they are great, and then they are immutable. So then the developers code an intent um, for the contract to do something. And then that intent is not always right because, you know, we are humans. And so stuff like the DAO hack happens. Mm -hmm. So... For that, we created, you know, smart contract reliability. And that's great because, you know, you can fix back, add, add features. But then what happens right now is that, like, every single, like, readable smart contract is controlled by a single address. And so it's basically centralized again. There is no 
there's no difference at all from like having that running on Ethereum to having that running in like Amazon Web Services if you can just swap out the code unilaterally. So I think it's very important to have these crypto protocols. Um, and, you know, there are a handful of them that have um, usage right now, such as Zero X, um, having them in, a, in an upgradable manner, but also um, in a manner that like people in the community can actually veto those upgrades or can even propose them. I think that's super, super important. And we will see a lot of crypto protocols use decentralized organizations for, for upgrades. Uh, and then you basically have a true common good. So there's a, the common good, which is the protocol, and it's controlled by its stakeholders, and they can upgrade it over time. So that's one of them. The other, the other one, I used to call them personal DAOs, uh, but now um, someone proposed a, a better name, Jeremy, from the from one of the other Aragon teams, and um, it's called smart accounts. And so what these smart accounts do is instead of having used one Ethereum account with all the pitfalls it has, such as for example, you lose a private key or you lose the mnemonic and you're done, um, or or your or your funds can be stolen. What you can have is you can deploy a decentralized organization that is just there for you. And so you can have very smart thresholds. You can, for example, say, okay, I have these three keys. And if I sign with one of the keys, I can just take one Ether per month. But if I sign with two, I can take, you know, like 10 or, or 100. Or for example, if I have the three of three, I can send a crypto kitty to my friend. Like you can really get picky with these parameters and you can have basically a decentralized organization that just works for your personal use, which I think is great um, because we need to move out of like the traditional uh, one key, one account model, which I think it's, it's very short-sighted. This this has a lot of legal implications. I'm going to start this by saying I am not a lawyer. Um, I I know some lawyers, and I know that this is complicated. You know, when it gets to this idea of uh, accountability and responsibility, uh, like who who is responsible for a smart account? Who is responsible for a decentralized organization? I mean, these are difficult questions that there's very little precedent, I'm sure, in the law for. Um, how, how do you think like the legacy legal system, right? Like what we do right now for all of our adjudication, like how would they be thinking about like smart accounts and decentralized organizations? Like, do you, do you think that they're prepared at all for the, for the universe that we're creating? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. It's, it, it's almost like a parallel universe. Like it's, it's hard to, it's hard to think about how to make both of them work at the same time because on one hand you have very subjective like human powered um you know uh let's say code and on the other hand you have uh this this machine code which is objective and it changes very fast and it can be very dynamic so for example when lawyers talk about is this token a security or not um, the interesting part is if the token is upgradable and people in the community can upgrade it overnight for example one day the token might be a security, the next day maybe utility, and the next day may not exist at all. So it is. I think it completely breaks the mold of legality. Like uh, I think we need to probably rethink all of our legal frameworks. How would we begin to have those conversations? Especially because I know that lawyers really like frameworks, you know, and they and they like precedent. How how do we begin having those conversations? One thing that I always try to highlight on this show is like. We're, we're trying to build a very collaborative future and it's hard to build a collaborative future if we're not talking with the people who are already making the decisions in, in our in our present day. How, how can we have better conversations with 
the the lawyers of today who take a look at the structure of a DAO and are probably deeply confused or concerned? Well, I mean, uh, I think it's not even lawyers. What is the core of the problem? It's the whole um, legal system. And, and let me let me put an example here. So, for example, our plans is to transition all the funds we raise in the token sale to to a DAO. That will be like the Argo Network DAO. And so, you know, when we presented this idea to our lawyers, uh, they were like, okay, but who is the counterparty? Like, who is who is the legal entity that is receiving this, I don't know, as of today, it's like $60 million. Um, what you have here is you have a contract because you're sending funds from a legal entity to somewhere else that you don't have a counterparty because who is the counterparty, right? Is that uh, there, there's no legal entity, it's just like a DAO, it's like code that is running on a blockchain. And so when you think about it that way, it's just very hard to make it fit into the existing legal system. It's very similar to when you pay gas fees for using Ethereum or you pay fees for paying Bitcoin, like there's no counterparty at all. And that completely breaks how the legal system works because when you create a contract, there are two parties or, or more involved in the contract. And if you cannot name one of the parties, then you know, it all it all breaks down. So I, I cannot really think of how um, to interface the two systems. I mean, we'll, we'll come up with a solution and we'll open source our learnings. But I think um, if people want to run decentralized organizations, the easiest way is just to create them from scratch. And because otherwise, what you're doing is kind of patching the new world to make it work with the legacy one instead of starting from scratch and clean. Let me ask you about something that's that <laughs> it, I'm laughing about it because I have I, I just don't have any clear conception of it. But a couple members of our team at DevCon attended the uh, the blockchains kickoff event. These are the guys who who bought all the land uh, in Nevada. Yeah, you've heard about this then. Yeah, yeah, of course. I saw, I saw the billboards. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the billboards I heard were were all over Prague. So, what what do you think of experiments like that? You know, that's a really ambitious one, but that's that's sort of an attempt to at least, you know, kind of like merge the real world with, you know, I mean, at least on on the surface, you're merging the real world with blockchain, with decentralization. Like, what, what do you think? What do you think of the potential of things like that? Even even if it's not blockchain specifically, although I want your perspective, what, what do you think about the potential of those kind of large scale experiments to create, as you're saying, like parallel universes? Yeah, I think billboards aside, I, I will not go into the billboards, but <laughs> um, but setting that aside, I think it's a great experiment. Like um, the problem there is, of course, if you have a jurisdiction that is controlling what you can do, and in their case, I think is the, the US, which is a pretty strict jurisdiction um, in terms of crypto, I think it's going to be hard. But if you get somewhere in the world that they are super friendly and then basically say, hey, this take this piece of land and do whatever you want with it. I think those kinds of experiments will be great because there is so much optimization that can be done rethinking all of these from scratch versus just building on legacy systems. Um, just imagine from your day-to-day, -day, like if everything had this technology impregnated, like you would save so much time and so much effort and even bureaucracy. Like, you know, w when you count the, the time that you are working for the government, it's not only the taxes you're paying, but also the time, like all the bureaucracy, it's really a tax on your time. So you have tax on your money and on your time. And if we can, you know, reduce all of that uh, and optimize all of that, that would be amazing. What if I gave you, um, I can't do this, but let's, let's play a thought experiment here. What if I gave you, you know, a whole bunch of land 
somewhere, somewhere either in Nevada or Switzerland or somewhere else and you had enough capital, like money wasn't an issue. And I said, go test whatever you want. Make whatever you want. See how it works. You know, the, the craziest kind of like decentralized idea. Don't worry about the influence of traditional organizations. Uh, you know, but you had the you had the land, you had the money, and and maybe you even had the talent, right? You were working with the people that you would want to work with. What what's the craziest thing that you would you would kind of think to do? What 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 should we test that we're just like you know that's what you would need to do it. It would take that kind of like time, capital, space, investment. But like you seem like you seem like you've got some visions. What what would you do with that? Actually, I don't really have a lot of crazy experiments in mind. I have more like small scale, um, very societal experiments in mind. So there is there is one that I would love to try out, which is so right now democracies are failing, and I think. Um, one one part of that is that it is impossible to sustain empathy with like five or fifty or five hundred million people that you don't know about, and so that's very hard. And even with like you know you can see a lot of the patriotism that emerges and all of that you know the the, the thing in like the Soviet um, the Soviet Union with like you know my brothers and sisters and all of that um, naming so you you would have empathy with your um, you know, um, like citizens, fellow citizens and all of that, but that has failed. Um, and so what I would love to try out is try to make smaller groups that are closer to Dunbar's number, which is the number of people uh, that you can empathize with, which I think is around 150 people. So try to have those very, very small communities and try to implement some, even like some universal income um, in those communities, because, you know, it's 100 people, you know them all. Uh, you can really empathize with them. And if you don't like them, you can move to their community. And so try to have that system, which is very opt-in, opt-out, small, so you can have empathy with people um, and seeing seeing how that works and seeing how communities coordinate between um, between the different like communities to build roads and all of these things that are required for society to work. So I think that will be an amazing experiment because I, I really think the days of the hugeness in a state with millions of people are are counted. Yeah, I'm sure we would learn about a lot of the potential of these types of smaller groups with with stronger empathy. I'm certain that we would also learn about some of the risks to these kinds of systems that you you don't really get to see unless it's in practice. I think that humans, to a large extent, are inherently tribal. Uh, It would be interesting to see how divisions would form within these groups or between these groups. You know, but these are questions that we kind of have to experiment with. And and I guess what we're saying is like, how can we use this sort of bleeding edge technology to maybe fix some of the issues that we've historically seen when when we have groups next to each other, whether whether they're countries or whether, as you're saying, it's small scale, like, is there a way that new technology can be can be brought to bear? Uh, I I don't personally believe that technology alone is enough. You know, and obviously all everything that we're talking about is just a tool, right? Um, and maybe this will be difficult for you to answer, uh, especially since we're focusing on on the on the upside of all of this. But how do you think some of this technology, like the the decentralized autonomous organization and things like that, how could it be misused? Like what we have to be thinking about the potential for misusing these technologies so that when we're building them, we can mitigate these risks and threats. So what do you think are some of the, the threats that you've had to think about as you're building these technologies and, and how might we mitigate them? 
Yeah, there are a lot of threats. And um, when building these systems, uh, we, you know, we compare it to basically like stuff like the internet, right? So you have something that is a technology and people can use it for, for good or bad. And my experience and what I have seen in the world is that people tend to use the stuff for, for good uses um, overall. Like I, I, I believe in humankind as, as a whole. But of course, when trying to architect these systems, we always think of what is the threat model. So like who may be able to um, to make you do something that you don't want to do. And so an example here is um, when you sign an Ethereum transaction, developers can trick you into doing something you don't want to do or, or even attackers. Right. And people, you know, people today just sign whatever they, they, they have in their payload because there is no better way to do it. Um, but we've been working on this solution called Raspec, and so Raspec enables you to have human-readable code uh, transactions when you when you um, are signing like these hex codes that are just weird Ethereum payloads. And so you see a beautiful description, a human-readable description, and you 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 can make make sure that what you're trying to do is actually what you're doing. And so stuff like this, or just making sure that. Um, everything is solid and there is no attacks that can happen um, either from like smaller attackers that have access to some server. I mean, in our case, there's no server, so that's fixed, but um, also like government level attackers that can really, um, you know, shift domains around or stuff like that. So we have to really make sure of that. Um, once we make sure of that, there is a lot of attacks that are just not attackers, but like people misusing it. And, and there are a lot of ways like people can use these organizations um, as they can use, uh, you know, like any kind of re- traditional world organizations. And as they are using the dollar today to like launder billions of dollars of, of money and, and you know, and there are cartels using the dollar as well. So I think, um, you know, technology can do bad or, or good things, but I don't think we should really think so much about it uh, because the, the traditional world technology is already allowing all of this. So we just have to um, optimize for, for good things. Yeah. And your point around the, the human readable language, right? Like, and again, this is not specific just to the technologies that you're building. I mean, this is something that again, lawyers deal with all the time and, and people will sign all kinds of contracts, forget, you know, forget smart contracts, people sign all kinds of contracts and all kinds of terms and conditions without, you know, remotely understanding what kind of rights they're actually signing away until it's much too late. And, um, again, I think we're fighting human nature here, uh, which is that, you know, people want stuff fast, uh, and and accessible, especially in this modern age, more than they really want to understand the ramifications of what that means. Um, so we accept the iTunes terms and conditions, you know, sight unseen, essentially. What, what can we do to make people more patient? I guess this, this is my question because there's a lot of impatience in the decentralization space. And I think you and I both know how long it's going to take to really get this parallel universe to scale and even longer to maybe integrate it with the, the traditional world. How, how can we encourage people to, to be more patient and maybe contribute, uh, to the ecosystem while still understanding the, the need for patience? That's actually a great question. Um, we've been thinking about, you know, we want to transition all of these funds to a DAO, like, you know, 50, 60 million dollars, um, whatever we have when we transition it. And one of our worries is what if people just want to cash it all out and take it home, right? Even if like in the long term, the more rational decision would be to wait and then see how that grows in value and basically see how the project evolves, right? And so I think this happens with 
basically all decentralized organizations. You can have these very perverse incentives for people to use um, be short-sighted. And we have a great tool today, which is staking. And so with the staking, you can lock tokens and you can you can force this lock to be you know a year, five years, 10 years. And so as an example, I think we are also seeing how people are very short-sighted in terms of um, electing their leaders. So they are like, oh, immigrants are coming into the US, whatever, I'm going to vote for Trump. Um, and they don't think about the ramifications of, of that decision at all. But if they if they put their, their money where their mouth is and they made something similar to Futarchy, for example, in which you put your money um, and you leave it there for like four years and then you see how the president has done. And if he hasn't done well, then you are at last. And if he has done well, then you are rewarded. I think that's a great example of how to use staking and this technology to actually incentivize people to look for the long term because that's a huge problem to solve in humanity today. So that leads me to maybe my last question, which is if, if we're saying that a great alignment mechanism and a great way to make people be patient is to help them buy into these ecosystems, you know, how do we do it? How do we get more people buying into these staking ecosystems, embracing DAOs? How are we getting more people and, and also like their capital and their time? into this space? What, what's it really going to take? Because that seems like what it's going to take to really make this work mm. and for people to commit long-term. I think obviously having technology that works because like everything is kind of not working today in the decentralized web. So there is a lot of technology that we have to really fix for this to work for everyone. And then obviously design for this to be um, usable by anyone. And then um, I think communications as well. Like right now, I think we are doing good at communicating the decentralized web vision, but I think we could do way, way better. And so um, I think that's very important, but ultimately it's just about incentives. So for example, if you look at Bitcoin, um, Bitcoin is a great store of value and it was kickstarted actually as kind of a, uh, of a way to, for people to think that it was like a get the rich quick scheme, right? And so um, you think, hey, I'm going to get rich quick, whatever. And then what you're doing actually is helping bootstrap this amazing network that creates like sovereign cryptocurrency for everyone. So I think this kind of um, incentive games where even people that uh, don't want to do good, they just want to have like some short sighted, um, you know, advantage or, or, or stuff like that. And then actually what they create ends up being very useful for humankind. I think these kind of systems are very interesting. And I think Satoshi was a genius for, for thinking about that for, for Bitcoin. So we really think to we need to think more about this these kind of incentives. It's very Adam Smith, right? You know, like that people will be guided by the invisible hand in their own self-interest and accidentally enable the decentralized yeah. web. Well, I mean, you you and I, uh, it, it sort of is our job, you know, especially as as head of marketing. Uh, you know, it is my job to sort of tell this story a little bit better every day about the decentralized web and, and the values that Aragon has and that Enigma has and that this, we have as a space. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of collaborative, collaborative efforts underway in the space that I think are going to help prove out that value. I think collaboration is a big value for the space and, and the more that we can demonstrate that value publicly, um, I, I think people will start to understand why this is like a meaningfully different and potentially world-changing uh, revolution that we're undergoing here from, from the technology down, down to the, the people who are, are building it and organizing themselves in, in new ways. It is super exciting to me.
It is. It is. I mean, I think the next couple of years are going to be a roller coaster as always with a lot of like, you know, um, ups and downs in terms of adoption and, you know, things breaking as well, because like there's very, really nice technology. So things will break, but I think they are going to be so, so exciting. Awesome. Well, I know that if something breaks, you'll fix it. Uh, and Aragon is doing some really <laughs> cool stuff. Uh, if people want to learn more about the project and, and kind of follow the work that you guys are doing, and I know Aragon is is uh, actually a fairly complex sequence of organizations now, right? And maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about that, where they can find out about uh, all these different aspects of the project. Sure. So in aragon.org, that's the like projects homepage. So you can go there and, and find out more. We have aragon.chat, which is the chat that we use to communicate inside the community. And then if you are if you're looking for opportunities and career opportunities, there are two teams currently working on Aragon because we want to decentralize development. So we have multiple teams working on the project. So one of them is uh, the one I'm working for, which is Aragon One. So Aragon.one. And there is also the Aragon DAC, and you can find all of the, the jobs in the jobs page in the wiki, which is wiki.aragon.org. This is so exciting. Well, I am sure our listeners will have a lot of reading to do ahead of them, but Aragon is doing some of the coolest stuff in this space and, and is really committed to this vision of decentralization. And as I said, with the mainnet launch, it's obvious that you guys are comfortable putting your code where your mouths are. So I, I tip my hat to you for that. Uh, and Luis, thank you so much for taking all this time. It was a pleasure to have you on Decentralize This, and I hope we get an opportunity to do it again in the future. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.